This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics. Hi, I'm Rose. And we are talking about Galactic Pot Healer by Philip K. Dick, a 1969 novel, I think. Oh, so early. I, well, of course, I guess most of his stuff was from then, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, he wrote he wrote pretty continuously. It was almost a compulsion with him. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, this 69. is. I think this might be my favorite novel. It's it's arguably as good as as. Um, the Man in the High Castle. Um, I haven't read all of his stuff, but this is one I, I I really enjoy. And you guys read it recently, right? Yes, the first time. And this is because I asked you which novels of his I should try, because I've read some of his short stories, and you recommended three different ones. And I think you might have said this one was funny or something. Or I it think that just the premise was funny. It's hilarious premise. Which is of the... Um, what, the Lovecraftian kind yeah. of monster that's living at the bottom Cthulhu. of... Cthulhu. What? Yeah. Cthulhu is his name in Lovecraft. Yeah. He lives at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He's an elder god, and he has malign desires on the earth or something like that. Um, there's a story by Lovecraft called The Call of Cthulhu. Right. And, and in that story, uh, it's, it's like something like... Uh, Cthulhu lays dreaming, uh, dead and not dead at the bottom of the Pacific, um, and in his city of Relais, the sunken city. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of ties between Philip K. Dick and Lovecraft, but this one certainly is more of a tie than you, you know, it's never mentioned, it's never even hinted at, but it it seems to be like... Oh my uh, word. The Glemung is kind of a god, Right. Well, and also when you said dead and not dead, that explains so much in this book about what's happening at the bottom of the ocean in his city instead of a cathedral, which is what the book this book has. So he's obviously done a parallel, but it's like Philip K. Dick looked at that story and went, what if he was a nice god and what if he was yeah. hilarious? Yeah, I'll write that is, book. This is, a, this is a hilarious book, and if you... If you didn't know who wrote it, I would have guessed, like, if it didn't say on the, the cover, I would have guessed it was Robert Sheckley because it, he, he writes sort of these um, Voltairian style of comedic uh, adventure. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even the ending is a joke, right? It's <laughs> nothing but jokes all the way through. And it's, it's really funny because I think it's, so, it's subject is so serious. Well, except I felt like the beginning part was what I've always heard about Philip K. Dick's Mm -hmm. novels, which is so depressing. The whole Earth situation, super depressing. And Rose, weren't you saying that's par for the course with Philip K. Dick? Yeah, the beginning of his books is always kind of like the, I mean, Earth is always like a horrible place. It's overcrowded and the government's too controlling. And um, people are always kind of reduced to a machine-like state of being. Yeah, yeah. He's the thing that struck me. I guess I I listened to it twice this week, and the thing that struck me the second time was everybody in this book, from beginning to end, 
is almost suicidally depressed. Some of them are literally suicidally depressed. Mm-hmm. But even even the Glimmung is suicidally <laughs> depressed at some times. He's he's he keeps he's he's still got you know sort of his bright sides. But he talks about when he feels depressed, and he feels all his energy is gone. And well, um, the other thing that's interesting is what's brought out again and again. And I'm I never thought about whether to apply this to the Glimmung, the Lovecraftian creature. Mm-hmm. Sorry about the dogs barking. It's okay. But is that everybody's afraid of failing. Everybody is paralyzed by this fear, which defines the fact that they cannot move and therefore they're depressed. Sounds right. It's also, interestingly, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, if you you talk about it, like a a high school teacher would be saying, I want you to map all the themes and the rising action or like that. Um, The one thing that I... (laughs) I would point out that I I think it's really sort of you know it's an existential book it's this it's all that it's also about the value and the importance uh of work. Mhm. Uh, uh, he's a he's the best pot healer on earth which is a hilarious job to begin with, right? But also he's he has no work and that's what's so depressing to him. You know, he's got a he's a divorced uh you know failed marriage um his only the only thing that's fun in his life that you know is enjoyable in his life is something that's pretty small which is you know the game he plays and i I think that that, that's one of the most memorable things i i i could recall about it was the game but the game is also so depressing in a way totally depressing right i mean it's all he i mean it's kind of an interesting game but it's so trivial and unimportant clever but not uh, uplifting, right? It you you do not, and you can see it in the other people too who play the game. They're all jo- in menial, you know, sort of cubicles like he is, um, unfulfilled, trying to get through the day by wasting as much time as they can. And uh, that that, by the way, it totally reminds me. Like this is about our society with oh man, people yeah, people on Twitter and people on podcasts, right? This is. This is um, not. This is not an irrelevant book, even though it was written, you know, in 1960s. It's totally relevant for the internet age, I think. Oh well, yeah. When he gets on the ship at first, and he's talking to I can't remember his girlfriend's name, Molly. Molly. Molly Yoye. Um. All he talks about, like all he can think of to tell her, is about the game. Hmm. And it's so uh, trivial. Yeah, she keeps ignoring him because she doesn't care because it's just some stupid game. Um, but he keeps bringing it up again because it's that's, the only that, thing he's got. That's something I see um, in uh, another writer as well. There's uh, Richard Matheson. Whenever oh. I read one of his stories, uh-huh. there's always this uh, – a lot of the characters are depressed or, or at least isolated from other people and making that – human connection and uh, we see that in this one as well but they they will often try to have conversations with other people about subjects that they think they're interested in and the other people will be at best um polite but but not um really care and and that happens in that in the early scene when he is playing the game he calls up uh somebody in the russian embassy or no no somewhere in russia 
uh, the wheat board or whatever it mm-hmm. is, and says, you know, uh, I've got a good one for you, right? And and he says, wow, wait, listen to mine first. And it's like, hey, you should listen to my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> my podcast is more interesting than yours. And stop talking <laughs> like that. It's so um, it's so sad and depressing, and yet the because everything is is uh, it it is such a funny world. It it you get the sense even at the very end when you get that that little hit of uh, oh poor guy he's just his life is still terrible after all of this. Uh, you get the sense that it's it's okay because at least you can laugh at it. Well, and it's funny thing because the reason I wanted to talk to Rose about the book, and and of course I would have said you, but um, because I knew she'd read all these other Philip K. Dick novels, is that very last line of the book. I thought he, I thought he meant to say everything means nothing and he should be depressed again, but it made me laugh because I looked at it and I loved it. I yeah, thought it was right. actually hopeful for the future. It, it's it's totally open, I think. Yeah. What do you think, Rose? Um, well, I think a lot of his novels um, can be interpreted either way, which I think is what's great about his job. Um, and I thought, you know, the last line was hopeful, but I can see where someone would think it was, you know, really depressing and meant he should have stayed with the glim, the glimmong. <laughs> yeah. And Molly. Right. But I, yeah. But I looked at it and I thought, well, if this continuing theme of fear and fear of failure is through it, he now has experienced the worst thing because he succeeded in being the best of them, as the Glimmung said, when they were lifting the cathedral. And he said, you're going to leave me? And I think he left because he thought Molly was going to leave. And then he's like, what am I going to do? So he starts making a pot. Instead of just fixing or healing what yeah. is broken, he is actually becoming a creator. He's actually putting something of himself out there with great hope. And then it says, the pot is was awful. But the thing yeah. is, is I looked at it and thought, but without trying and improving, which is kind of what he learned through the Glimmung, the Glimmung failed, and then came back and said, I'm not stopping until I get it right. Hopefully, I thought he would take this lesson and go, sure? I'm going to try it again. Are you sure that Glimmung failed? It's it's Well it's the very kind of first crazy. time I was thinking, doesn't he he takes them all into himself and he mm-hmm. tries and they can't lift it. And he spits them all out and then he goes, then he doesn't he come back and say, Okay, yeah, I'm gonna that. do it again. So he mm-hmm. fails the first time with them and then he says, No, come on everybody, let's do it again and then they do it again and they succeed. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's very symbolic too. I I, I think that you know he, you know, if you know a little bit about Philip K. Dick's personal relationship with uh, religion, you you can see like he, all of his interests are in this book. He, he loves history. He loves church history. He loves um, Roman history. He, he loves wordplay. Um, it's all here. It's all here. And and you know, like even the name of the ocean that the 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 cathedral sunk in. Oh, it's, what is it? It's uh, Mare Nostrum. Oh, now, yeah. Now, Nostrum, <laughs> this, is, this is where the lecturing comes in here. I looked it up. <laughs> a nostrum is a medicine of secret composition recommended by a preparer, but usually without any proof of effectiveness. Uh-huh. Uh, or 
a medicine placebo. sold with false or exaggerated claims. What, Rose? So a placebo. Yeah, a, a placebo, but more like a patent medicine, right? It's a, it's something that people sell to us um, that we hope will work, but probably won't. Well, that's interesting, too, because at one point Molly says, and of course I've got it marked but can't find it, she says she thinks the Glimmung did all this in order to give them hope because he loves them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, when you look at it, um, because I also was thinking about, they talk at one point about agape, caritas, which mm-hmm. is very Christian, um, and they're talking about Christ at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at the fact that, and of course, I'm happy Catholic, so I'm going to think about it like this, but I looked at the fact that all these people are pulled into the glimmung. He could absorb them, but he doesn't. So they're all connected. They're all more than they would normally be. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's almost, um, for a Christian, that would almost be a body of Christ analogy. Mm. It's, 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 he, the Glimung is kind, he's not God, no, right? He's right. not a deity, but he is related to de- deities. And, I mean, there's lots of talk about, uh, you know, the power of Jesus and his connection to his, his father and and you know the, the well, yeah unlimited power versus unlimited knowledge and and uh, I've got that quote here I think it says it came into being the robot said because this is what Christ did he worried about other people worry is the true translation of the Greek agape and the Latin caritas Christ stands empty-handed he can save no one not even himself and yet by his concern his esteem for others he transcends and. The way the Glimmung is, right, he he has this project, and he reaches out to every being that could help him in the galaxy, um, among which is our main character, um, and all of them are depressed. All of them want, if they go home, they will kill themselves. They go back to a mm-hmm. path of suicide and, you know, a pointless existence. Um, that's what is kind of what is drawing him to pick those people out to do this project, right? right? And and it's like a there's an existential problem of ennui or uh, or disaffection with the lack of meaning, and and that actually goes back to Lovecraft as well because Lovecraft had this idea that in the universe, uh, uncaring and uninteresting. Uh, oh, sorry, uninterested in us and uncaring about us at the at the at best and at worst yeah. malign and against yeah. us. Yeah, we are uh, in a, a speck of of unimportance and finding that place amongst us, we should feel greatly depressed. Well, <laughs> right to the to the elder gods. Exactly. If they become aware of us at all, are likely to just yes eat us or absorb us or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the the best, uh, the worst. They're sort of like a oh, a symbolic version of just the the feeling that you get when you know how small humanity is in history and uh, history of the universe and and such. Yeah. Well, and of course, oh, go ahead, Rose. Oh, well, I was going to say this whole thing can also be interpreted as a Jungian analogy. Oh, let's hear that. Um, so Jung was the collective unconscious. Right. That was his big thing. 
but he also believed that um, people in a world without spirituality spend their whole lives searching for their spirit. Um, so if you interpret it as Joe trying to basically find his soul, um, that kind of justifies a lot of the story. And for him, for Young, um, the idea of of delving into that unconsciousness and finding yourself um, kind of through becoming connected with everyone else in the collective unconscious. Um, mm. He always felt that people using metaphors where you go underwater to find treasure, mm. that was the metaphor for going into the collective unconsciousness and finding your soul. It's, wow. It sounds exactly right. I mean, what, yeah. what does he, what does Joe Fernwright find when he goes under the water, right? <laughs> yeah, he the plot with the message. Oh, oh yeah, no, and his dead self, self, right? Dead self. Dead and undead. Right. So Young would have said that his, the, the self that he finds underwater is not an evil thing like Molly thinks, but um, a part of his own psyche that he needs to, like, come to terms with. Exactly. Yeah, he he is afraid of his own death, and he's afraid of what that death would be like. And 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 this, when he describes the feeling, uh, you know, what 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 the lifestyle of that corpse? It's your own corpse, she says. Right. Mm-hmm. Read this part here. It's so good. It's your corpse, um, Molly said. You understand? Time down here is simply not. It's blind. He said. Its eyes have rotted away. Gone. Can it see me? It is aware. How does she know this, right? Mm-hmm. It is aware of you. It wants, and then she thinks that it's a black glimmong version of him, right? Right. It's it's his negative self, and that's an interesting thing. But when it when it talks, it has this horrible story that it tells, right? It says, um, "Let me see if I can find that part." <laughs> okay, here it says. Uh, it extended a decomposed arm towards Joe. We too, it became silent. Then, and by degrees, drifted away. But it isn't so bad. I have a box I ma- I've made. It helps protect me. I get inside it and put up a barrier where the door, the entrance is. And very few of the fish, the really dangerous fish, get in. <laughs> and what, what that is, is it's a coffin, right? He's He's got a box and he puts a cover over it yeah. to help him protect himself from the, the fish that want to chew up his body. Oh, I didn't even, you know, I should have thought of that, but I was busy thinking of his life it's, back on it, Earth. Oh, he's he, he gets completely distracted and that happens again and again. Something, somebody will start quoting a poem and then, you know, our main character will distract us from what what Philip K. Dick is, you know, he's sending so many messages. He'll oh, just distract us immediately saying, you know, how can you want to protect your life? Your life is over. <laughs> but that happens like <clears throat> the beginning too, when he's talking about all the game, right? There's all these books, mm-hmm. they, books and movies. I guess it's books, book titles and such. Um, they name a book and then it's, you know, we get the reveal and, a lot of them we don't get the reveal. We just are left to wonder. I wonder what that meant. <laughs> but because the story keeps going and doesn't ever go back to that, we'll never know. We have to we have to work it out for ourselves afterwards. 
I know. Yeah, I this book, I feel like, had a lot more references than his other books normally do. Yeah, there's more allusions than per square inch of the page than than in other books, I think. Right, because, well, you know, there's all of this, the game stuff, but then there's also, you know, he makes references to Kant, he makes references to Young, he makes references to um, Faust. Oh, yeah, Faust. poetry in here. You know, he talks about albatrosses. I mean, mm. there's mm-hmm. all sorts of references in this book that aren't normally in his books. Well, and what I wonder, since I have an, a very, very incomplete knowledge of most of that stuff, is I look at it and I think the way he talked about Christ was not correct, actually, in terms of who Christ really was. You know, it wasn't that he had no power. It wasn't that he ha- he had... Um, he couldn't save himself. Well, this is just one so what I Well, no, that's, so what I'm wondering is if he what he took was, you know, just incomplete versions of those to put them together for this, his own purposes. You know what I'm saying? Like the Jungian thing. And well, yeah, if we really. These are all things he thinks about. Right. That's, all, I, that's what I mean is he was just throwing all these things in together and weaving the story going. And here's what I think of this. And here's what I think of that. And let's put it all together and see what comes out at the end. You know, but but when you say here's what I think of it, that's not actually what's happening. What is this? Here's an idea, right? And he doesn't believe most of the things that he's mm-hmm. suggesting more than the length of the time it it he has to put it down on paper. Well, right? that's that, kind of what I was thinking is because the thing <laughs> because to me the tell on that was one of the funniest things is um, Willis the robot mm-hmm. who's <laughs> he's constantly like, oh, tell me this. No, you have to say Willis, tell me this, right. you know. He's very self-aware, and so when they're talking, right before the part you read, Molly's saying, we're aware of the other two criteria, unlimited power and unlimited knowledge. Then you've read my pamphlet, says the yeah. robot. <laughs> you know, and he's like, <laughs> and he's talking about, oh, this and this, and she goes, just give us the pamphlet, we'll read it later. So you know it's the... You have to say Willis, give me the pamphlet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's extreme, an extremely... Uh, just snippets of something that he wants to include to either further the story or further whatever it is that he's intent on telling. It's, you know, pan- here's the pamphlet form, which is probably yeah. incomplete because most pamphlets can't cover anything as deep as Jung or Kant or Faust or whatever. Well, notice um, that this, this book is not a pamphlet, right? Right. It's it's not super long like a lot of books are. I, I was surprised how short it was in re-listening to it. I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's it's very succinct um, in in novel size for these days, but there there is a there's a big symbol symbolic thing happening. I think so. One of the things that I, I, like why is this cathedral need to be raised? It, it is sort of explained. There's the story of the the goddess or sorry the god that it uh, that it it was built for. I guess mm-hmm. and this this uh, I want to say. Amistad, but that's not the name. Of, what, what what's the name of that? Um, Amid Midara. I can't remember. Amistara. Damn it. Um, and then there's there's the Glemung is uh, kind of quasi deity, but then there's the who the cathedral was for, and it was a male god with a female name. And there's a uh, the male god made a female goddess that was 
stronger than himself. Right. Because it is um, the epitome of love. You love things that are stronger than you. You love things that yeah. are more beautiful than you. You like all these things. And so he made someone who could destroy him, basically. Um, is that the right summary there? Yeah, something well, yeah, like that. Yeah, there are like three things that would make someone the most attractive person. And one was them being stronger than you and them being it, it being a forbidden love. Oh, that's and, it. Um, Let's see. I can't uh, remember what the other one I was. I got it somewhere here. Okay. I'll, yeah, this is the robot talking, he says. <laughs> oh, no, I actually tweeted this one earlier <laughs> this week. He felt apathy, and there was nothing to feel apathetic about. Molly <laughs> <laughs> spoke um, with emotion. It did not, it, it, without emotion, it did not involve her. And then the robot is talking about his brochure. He says, let's tackle sexual desire first, the robot said. As is well known, the most enjoyable form of sexual love is that which pertains to incest. It's like, what? Okay. <laughs> I know. As is well known. It's <laughs> a fundamental taboo throughout the universe. The greater the taboo, the more sheer excitement. Hence, um, um, Amalita, that's the name of the god, um, created his sister, Borel. The most exciting aspect of sexual love is love of, for someone evil. And it's like, what? Okay. <laughs> someone who, if you don't love them, you would abominate them. So Amelita caused his sister to be evil. She began at once to tear down everything which he had over the centuries built. And then it says how in order to make uh, it even better, he made her more powerful so that he would be defeated by her. And it's like, okay, this is actually um, him sort of reading into uh, Old Testament. I mean, this is, uh, it's even in, I think, the book jacket talks about how it's an, it's sort of, if the Glemung is a god, he's the Old Testament god, not the New Testament god. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there's this idea of God the creator uh, creating, and what, what is he creating for? And so this all this stuff about Heldskala being a fallen thing, and it must be raised back up. Well, I was thinking, it's a cathedral, right? That's what it is. But what is a cathedral, essentially? It's church. Right, a place of worship. But the church. Right. Actually... It's the main church for an area, yeah. But also, it's the church, as in it's uh, Catholicism. Philip K. Dick was really... He was very interested in religion, and he often would become fascinated with them and join them and, you know, and then leave them. And... That's what happens in this book. We've got uh, a bunch of people coming together uh, for a project, like, like a church raising, basically, yeah. right? Um, and most of them continue on with it. But like Philip K. Dick, the main character, he leaves it, even though probably it was a better idea that he not leave. But he leaves it and tries to do his own thing. And the only other person who comes with him is uh, uh, by, uh, right. uh, like a Bivalve. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, sea creatures in this, uh, sea aliens in this story. Yeah, I just I thought that was. Uh, I mean, all, all of the um, this the symbolic things that are happening. Uh, we haven't talked about the Book of the Kalends, right? Well, that's what I was um, thinking. It was kind of funny too because one of the things about this book, since you you mentioned way back the theme of people being saved through work. Mm. And in a sense, it's actually people being saved through an aspiration to achieve something higher. They have to work yeah. to do it because 
Willis the robot, they're like, what? Because uh, Joe finally says, you're a Calend. And the robot doesn't answer. And he mm. says, and your pamphlet is the book of Calends. Right. And he says, not exactly. Meaning what? Mally demanded sharply. Meaning that I have based my various pamphlets on the book of the Calends. Why? Joe said. The robot hesitated and then said, I hope to be a freelance writer someday. Yes, he's, he has his own aspirations. <laughs> so everybody in this book who's there, I mean, really, they hope to achieve something else. And they may not know what or how. But they have a higher aspiration. They want to do something more. They want to be fulfilled that way. But in and, a lot uh, of ways, the robots are actually more alive and more human than the people are. They're the only ones who aren't suicidal. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. The, like, because they're more talent, hopeful and more full of life than you know Molly, for instance. But he does. You notice that he does have this. At one point in the story, he. He says, oh, no, forget it. But he's, he says, you must say Willis, right? There's, he keeps saying that over and over and over again. And then there's this one scene where he, he, he just gets tired of having to remind them to say it. And yeah. he says, Whatever. Just, okay, fine. Right, because yeah. they are human now. I mean, the idea that he doesn't actually have to have his name said first, which would be a robotic thing of like the only way to command this robot is to say, right. Willis, do this. He doesn't actually have to have that. He wants it, but he doesn't have to have it. So he can just say, oh, forget it. I'll just do whatever. Well, th- that's right. the thing. Is, is So it, w- why is he a robot, right? What What is the purpose of that? And I think if you had read our other story, which we're going to talk about in another podcast, um, the, the, the whole thing about robots, right, is, and Philip K. Dick in other novels has a lot of interest in robots and other books and other short stories. He, he's fascinated by robots and, and such. I mean, he is programmed to require that you say Willis, right, before you, you talk to him, but he doesn't actually have to have it. He can ignore his programming. He can. He's just not supposed to, right? Right. He has to tell you how to how to interact with him, and yet he could ignore his programming if he wanted to. And that is fascinating because um, it's like, you know, I was in Costco the other day, and somebody said to me while I was there, I, I was taking a picture of something, uh, a price, and I was texting it to my mom who my disabled mom who needs to know what the price of something mm-hmm. is. So I texted to her and the, the person in Costco says to me, you can't take pictures in here. And I said, I just did. <laughs> what she means is, not, is supposed to. <laughs> not supposed to. And I say, you know, your policy is uh, inhuman, right? It's an inhumane mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm, I'm going to spread the prices online. All I want to do is make shopping more convenient, right? But she could disregard the the policy. She just chooses not to because it's her job not to. Well, and go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and that is our essential thing, right? We have a we, we we are supposed to do things like buckle your seatbelt, and we say things like buckle your seatbelt. You have to buckle your seatbelt. And after a while, it becomes a habit, and we sort of stop thinking about it. But we could choose not to. And this whole book is about whether you have a fate or not. The robots are supposed to follow their programming, but mm-hmm. they really they really don't have to. And that's why he says, you know, I have 
I have desires to be a writer, right? He, yeah. he, he doesn't just do this roboting thing, right? He does. He has his own thing. I have my own he, life. That's right. <laughs> well, so, and so it's this, funny yeah. because we can fall so easily into that robotic way of thinking in terms of thinking of other people just not as people. And I realize this is taking a big leap because I just watched this movie last night, um, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Oh, what, I heard that one the other night. I, uh, my mom was watching it while I was, while I was Legoing. It was much better while you were Legoing. I love yeah. that. <laughs> um, it was actually, I got it because I was like, yeah, I, I heard in the reviews it wasn't supposed to be. That great. It's supposed to be predictable, but the actors are good and all this. And I was like, I got it anyway, because I was like, I need something easy. And it was much better than I thought. They should have focused the script a little more and dropped a couple of stories, but that's okay. It was really good in some aspects. And one of the things that they were pointing out was um, it's all these older people who can't afford to stay in nice places in England. So they all go to this, you know, um, Indian retirement village type place or it's a big hotel and of course uh, they get there and one lady judy dench she still doesn't have very much money so she needs to have a job so she goes to work for this call center and it makes a very clear point that before she leaves england she gets a call from someone who's insisting that or she's trying to find out what's the difference between wi-fi and wireless Mm. and it's all these things that your parents or somebody who's not used to computers don't get and the person on the other end who you can tell is Indian is going, well, I have to talk to the main person who holds the account. She's like, he just died. My husband, he just died. And the person's like, I'm sorry, I can't go off script. I'm not yeah. even listening to you. And it was and very robotic. The book, in the movie, they she she teaches them how to be more human. Right, right? and that's what I was going to say. So in the movie, she's teaching them. They're They're doing the call, and the person keeps going back to the script, and she keeps going, no, listen to what I'm saying. Is that what you would say to a real human? Be a human being for a minute. And it's that thing that you're talking about that in this book, everybody, and starting with him, who he can only go to his cubicle, he can only do the kind of work he's supposed to do. He, and there um, is no, right? That's the and there thing. is no work for him, it, but it doesn't matter. Work. Right. An and, and then when he goes home, he can't even go to bed early without pulling a lever for, are you going to have a dream or are you going to have sex? And he's like, right. oh, I don't want this dream that they program for me. I'll pull the sex lever. I'm sorry. You weigh this much. You're not right. having sex. You can't pull this lever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how regimented he is into here's how you should behave. Mm-hmm. And so then by the end of the book, it's... It's dehumanizing, right? Right. It's it's making him into a robot like in that movie. And I, I, knew, I realize this is a weird connection, but I just was no, like, it's that's exactly prospect. what's happening. This book it was really prescient in a lot of ways that I found kind of depressing myself actually because i was the thing about the government mm-hmm. oh my gosh you know oh you can't he was gonna light a cigarette but then he went oh there's all these smoke detectors and it's not that they'll go off it's that they'll find him smoking real tobacco and fine him you get a cup yeah. of coffee in a restaurant all the caffeine's been taken out by law because that's not good for you and so they're yeah. micromanaging the little details of your life to such an extent for your own good but see They've putting your seatbelt is a good idea. Putting on your seatbelt is a good idea. But the fact that we say it without thinking, you know, imagine, you know, I'm a bus driver and I see somebody who's I just had the colostomy bag installed and I say, put on your seatbelt. That's not the best thing to say to that person. But if you 
follow the rules like a robot does, mm-hmm. right? You end up being inhumane. And and we have these rules so that we can interact with large numbers of people theoretically as a, you know, very convenient and efficient way of, right. of dealing with a mass society, but it is inhumane not to be full of agape and caritas and and worry about other people. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's 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 a very good connection I think you're making. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because it's to apply it in the right way. It's to know when the rules apply and when the rules don't apply. There's a there's a scene that I think everybody would have laughed at, no matter what <laughs> what. Uh, uh, religious or non-religious persuasion you are, because um, it 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 sort of encapsulates the problem of the book. It's when he's at the uh, spaceport. I was going to say airport, but he's at <laughs> yeah. the waiting for his airplane to come or a rocket to come, whatever it is. He he. I'll read this section here, he, and this is actually in a movie called THX 1138. If you've seen that, I've seen that. Of course, I think Rose yeah, has seen, seen that it. too, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's much more depressing in that movie. <laughs> Everything's yeah. much more depressing in that. Movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah, it That's was very... so so forward thinking. It was super depressing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's 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 kind of like um, we did uh, We by Yevgeny Zimyatin. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like nineteen eighty four. It's kind of like everything. It's it's a very good synthesis of many dystopian things. But I wanted to read this section here. He says. Um, uh, seated there in the waiting room of the spaceport, seated upon an uh, unpleasant plastic chair. Everything, his world is plastic, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of our world, too. Joe heard rocket motors winding up. He turned his head, saw through the great window an LB-4 rise upward, shaking the building and everything in it. And then, in a matter of seconds, it had gone. Nothing remained. I love his sentences where he says, it had gone, comma, nothing remained. Right? <laughs> it's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> and he reminds you. How depressing that is, just by the extra few words saying the exact same thing. He says, I, I gaze across the silence of the marshes, he thought, and out of them, mysterious and wild, pops the sound of giant vehicles. This is, he's quoting from something, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is, but it, 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 I gaze across the silence of the marshes. That's going back to a, uh, another earlier poem I think he's quoting from. Getting to his scene, he crossed the waiting room to the Padre booth. City, oh, seated inside, he put a dime into the slot and dialed at random. The marker came to rest at Zen. Tell me your torments, the Padre said, in the elderly voice marked with compassion, and slowly it spoke as if there were no rush, no pressure. All was timeless. Joe said, I haven't worked for seven months, and now I've got a job that takes me out of the soul system entirely, and I'm afraid. What if I can't do it? What if, after so long, I've lost my skill? The Padre's weight a weightless voice floated reassuring back to him. You have worked and not worked. Not working is the hardest work of all. <laughs> That's what I get for dialing Zen. Yeah. <laughs> Before the Padre could intone further, he switched to Puritan ethic. Without work, the Padre said in a somewhat more forceful tone, a man is nothing. He ceases, ceases to exist. Rapidly, Joe dialed Roman Catholic. <laughs> God and God's love will accept you, the Padre said in a faraway, gentle voice. You are the, you are safe in his arms. He will never, Joe dialed Allah, kill your foe, <laughs> the Padre said. I have no foe, Joe said, except for my own weariness and fear of failure. 
Those are enemies, the Padre said, which must be overcome in a jihad. You must show yourself to be a man. A man, a true man, is a fighter who fights back. The Padre's voice was stern. Joe dialed Judaism. A bowl of Martian fatworm soup, <laughs> Padre soothingly intoned. But, the, but then Joe's money wore out, and the Padre closed down, inert and dead, or anyhow, dormant. That weren't soup, Jill reflected. And then he goes to the cafeteria. <laughs> that might be the best advice of all. Yeah. I, I love this. Have a nice bowl of soup. He just dips into every mm-hmm. everything looking for the solution. And, and the society, right, on this, on this horrible earth, right, where the things are horrible not because of, of you know, uh, concentration camps. It, they're horrible be- because we've tried to regulate everything so that everybody's equal and everybody's um, everybody gets their say and and everybody's you know efficiency is is up to speed. He, he gets a he almost gets a ticket for <laughs> walking too slowly. Right. That's a, first thing I marked is so funny. Yeah. It's like. And this is the same thing. It just takes the the top. Um, thing that anybody can tell from these various religions mm-hmm. or you know ways of believing and but also and just put feeds it, it back to you right you have your choice yeah and it's not like there's any uh hierarchy there right it's just it's just uh you, they've encapsulated all of them mm-hmm. not encapsulated they've they've managed to use all of them to make money so that people can get their their sense of satisfaction from reassurance of whatever flavor they lo- they want, which is, you know, also what we do with, you know, uh, friending and unfriending and uh, yeah. seeing our, our sources of news and all of that stuff. It's so what I was thinking is what does, if, if this is a book about religion, then the, the access that he has, uh, Joe Fernwright has to the religion doesn't satisfy him. He goes to, this other new thing, which is to revive the spirituality that will satisfy him in some way with the project, right? Mm-hmm. To Scala, which he has no interest in other than it's, oh, I'll get some work fixing healing pots, right? That's, it's, it's just so he can have that work and be satisfied again. Well, yeah, and, and also pots are what he loves. He has a definite... Um proclivity for that i mean he he sees the pots in the cathedral like, ooh, you know that's what draws him yeah they're beautiful yeah well, one of the and lines that, i thought was great in the book um was when the glimmung is first talking to joe and he's like i don't understand um i think oh man he's like i don't understand like you sit here and wait for work and you complain because you don't have it but i don't understand why you didn't just go to the museum and break all the pots right yeah that was good. There's that idea of like Joe, he's just sitting there waiting like the spider and the cop. Right. Mm, exactly. Um, That's the symbol that comes again and again, right? Yeah. But he's not, um, he's not doing anything. He's not searching for meaning. He's waiting for it to find him. And if the Glemong hadn't come, he would like the spider and the cop just die because there's no way a fly or some sort of spirituality or meaning in his life could find him where he is. He waits on. There's nothing he can do but wait. The little fisherman of the night. And, and it, that comes again 
uh, again and again. And the little fisherman of the night, as Glimmung had called the lowly spider, um, that spider in the cup that he felt sympathy for, you know, that it made that little web mm-hmm. that didn't, would never catch anything. But what else is it going to do, right? Um, and then at right at the end, right before that, uh, the, right before the Glimmung, you know, releases every releases the two people who want to leave and keeps everybody else who want to stay. It says it is done. Glimmung thought, and we get it from Glimmung's point of view, not Joe's point of view. Now I can rest. Mm-hmm. The great fisherman of the night has received its victory, and see that to me. Forgot that. To me, that that is why it's not a defeat. He's not defeated in in the project because. It's not by achieving the victory that that he is victorious. It's by doing right. It's it's it, this is a book about work and about the value of of having doing of not having do, done something, but of doing things. Yeah, I don't think it's about. I mean, work is an easy word, but I don't think it's about work. I think it's about. I think it's that aspiring to higher things or to other things or aspiring at all. Yeah, he can't. But he 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 certainly couldn't have gone to the the museum and broken all the pots and then and fixed it and gained a real true satisfaction. Right. He would have gained the busy work. Mm-hmm. Just that, like the game. And the game. I mean, as fun as the game is to, to read about, you know, <laughs> I think we would get sick of this after. A few weeks or a few months of you know exchanging it and and say to ourselves, is this all there is? Which is right? why I avoid Twitter. Actually, it's a it's a good reason to avoid it. I think. Yeah, I'm, and um, lots of traps out there. His relationship with society is actually um, in the opening quote from D. H. Lawrence. Oh. Um, which is, and I was truly afraid. I was most afraid, but even so, honored still more that he should seek my hospitality from out the dark door of the secret earth. Right. And that's from a poem, Snake, that D.H. Lawrence wrote about, um, the whole thing is about a man's encounter with a snake that comes out of the ground and he knows that it's a, you know, it's a poisonous snake. It's gold versus black, which he talks about in the poem. But um, there's a part of him that's been trained by society that says, you know, you need to kill this snake. If you're a man, you'll kill it. Mm. dangerous and bad but there's another part of him that's just um his more natural untrained self like his gut feeling about the snake that he loves this snake that there's something great and wonderful and mysterious about the snake mm. he really likes having it around and in the end he um he does kill the snake and he immediately regrets it Mm. And, you know, it says in the poem, and I thought of the albatross, and I wished he would come Mm. back, my snake, for he seemed to me again like a king, like a king in exile, uncrowned in the underworld, now due to be crowned again. And so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have come to, and I have something to expiate, a pettiness. Oh, pettiness? Yes. Uh And it's funny that they actually mention the albatross, which, of course, um, was it the rhyme of the ancient mariner mm-hmm. yep. um, where the albatross is good luck and once they kill it, it becomes bad luck because yeah. in um, the black glimmung, right? Right. Well, Joe actually says in the novel at one point 
that um, he should have come. It's when he comes in his true form and breaks through all of the floors into the basement. Oh, yeah. Um, and Joe says he should have come as an albatross, which yeah. I thought was really strange because, you know, it is a symbol of bad luck now. Um, but look, well, the poem, it's like, you know, it, it's a reminder of like, well, it was only bad luck once you kill it. And then later he comes as a bird, mm-hmm. a huge bird. Although Joe so, thinks it's an eagle, maybe. It's it's um one of the things Molly says is he always manifests himself as a as a symbol of the sea, right? Yeah. Uh, and and even when <laughs> when he first <laughs> communicates with Joe Fernwright, right? He he sends a a, a bottle with a note in it <laughs> up through his toilet tank. Well, and then isn't he in the washing machine when Joe's in the basement? I mean. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was hilarious uh, without knowing about the sea at that point. And, and I had connected that with the spider because that's where I think of base, uh, spiders being in basements. But um, so I just so that's also got water in it. <laughs> it's a, but um, somewhere, didn't delightful. Joe find when he was down there at the bottom with that cathedral, wasn't there a giant snake carved down there? I don't remember. Or did a I snake. make that up? A mm-hmm. cobra? Mm-hmm. There is um there's a there's a the, the black cathedral as well as the black glimmung and and one of the things that I I noted the second time listening this week was when they are down there they see the bones of a black glimmung right. and Molly tells uh Joe about she she's visit she's lived on uh Plowman's planet before mm-hmm. I think I mean we can spend hours just decoding all the words but um, I think there's there's something there too, <laughs> crumbles and such. You know all these these things, but there this black glimmung. It's directly stated that the bones of this gla- black glimmung look like the bones of an ark. Yes. And I thought, oh, that's the symbol, right? It's the symbol for the surviving of the destruction of the of the deluge. Mm-hmm. It's it's a glimmung is a thing that saves everyone who is worthy and the glimmer calls to all these people on all of these planets to come and be saved. And that's not old Testament arc, is it? It's a new Testament arc, right? Because everybody from all the places gathered together. That's and Christian. It's, and it's not that they're good or bad. It's just that they're beings and they are in distress. And the glimmer is actually, you know, it, it says, is it malign? No, it's actually the opposite. It's it's trying to help everybody. It may not know that it's trying to do that, but it certainly is. It, all of the people it calls to, all the aliens, the bivalves and the mollusks and <laughs> Molly and, and, uh, and Joe Fernwright, they're all suicidally depressed and happy to be whisked away off of their planet, uh, pushed away, right? They They all think that maybe that that the Glimmung has even informed the police that they're, you know, going to be given all this money so that they get into trouble and have to leave, right? Right. He's really forcing their hands so that they can't not do it. Yeah. yeah. Molly says, I think Glimmung planned this undertaking to save us. I think he saw us all, the futilities of our various lives and where they were leading, and he loved us because we were alive. And at one point, he tells Joe, there is no small life. 
All life, right. it, all life matters. That's why it's the great fisherman right. and not the little fisherman of the night. Yeah. Right? And he did what he could to help us. The raising of Helskalda is only a pretext. All of us, and there may be thousands, are the real purpose of this. Um, I wanted to uh, point out that the name of that goddess, um, sorry, the god who is the temple, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've lost the... It's Amelita, I believe. Amelita. So if you look that up, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, I, was look, I looked it up because I, I, t- I try and look these things up. Um, it, it, it's hard work. Oh, it's really? Work, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, and see, I was wondering, Helskala, that sounds like something Norse. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't find that one. But I didn't look anything up, so. You know, Philokidic is, is always constantly reading and picking things up. And, and, uh, and I mean, I, I, I don't think you can underestimate the levels of, of interesting things that he's packed in there. Because every time you start looking at it, you can find these connections that he's. I mean, the 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 calends, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a calend is is it comes from. It gives us the word calendar. Is that Roman? It's Roman. Yeah. And it's the way the Romans back then they didn't have a good calendar like we do. It's sort of organized. You know, <laughs> they had to uh, calculate what the days of the month would be like, and so. They would, at the beginning of, I guess, every new month, they would calculate the days and then inform the people in the same way that Talent is like a publication. The the Roman priests would make this this thing, and, and that actually would tell you uh, when when your taxes were due and when your debts had to be paid and oh. stuff like that. So and that- so it's like, yeah, it's un- the unavoidable thing, right? Death and taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the Ides of March, is that why... I would guess so, that yeah. would have come from the calends or something or a prediction for that particular person, I guess, Julius Caesar at that point. But yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so well. Yeah. This well, book even, Oh, go ahead, Rose. Oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say rereading it. I was thinking I might have to actually buy this book instead of just get it from the library because it's very rich. Also, super funny. Very, very rich. But it's and super funny. Yeah, worth rereading. So go ahead, Rose. That's- yeah, I was um, just wondering if anyone had any thoughts. I mean, he makes so many allusions to Faust um, mm. throughout the work. And I think what's interesting is that he only ever talks, you know, there's this thing where he says, Faustian man striving upward, never satisfied. Glimmer right. was like Faust in certain respects, unlike him in others. And I thought it was interesting that he said Faustian man striving upwards, never satisfied. But nowhere in the book does he ever talk about the one thing everyone knows about Faust, which is that he made a deal with the devil. Yeah, right. And that's how he got his power. And it's, it's weird because at one point he talks about Faust in the sense of a creator, as someone that cleared the marshes or something. And I just didn't know if anyone had any explanation for why what I was, a big omission, I guess, in the Faustian story. I don't, I don't know much about Faust, and I haven't read it, but I can tell you that the connections within, you know, the way he's described in the book, uh, the Glimung and everyone has to confront their, their evil or bad self and yeah. overcome that. And the Glimung goes down into the ocean... And fights himself, right? Mm-hmm. And wrestles dies. with himself. Yeah. And whether he's going to win or lose is a subject of 
of you know debate, and the only one who who says you know I'm going to stick it out here is is Joe Fernwright, and and right. he himself has to confront that that negative self of him, his his own death, his own fears, his own uh, being upset, and and in overcoming that he is. It's not like he's greater. It's just that he has to do it, right? It has to be, you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that you're going to die. And if you don't do that, you're in denial. And your life is not and going to be better because you don't avoid, because you avoid it. Right. And you also have to overcome a fear of failure. That's the other thing people battle. All the, I mean, we all know this. We're human. Yep. And I can't believe that Philip K. Dick didn't mean for us to all think about this. I mean, some of the things we battle are, if I try this, what's going to happen? And the fact remains, if you don't try it, you're failing yourself. You are that other negative thing. You have to overcome that so that even if you fail, now that I think of it, the pot at the end, it's not the end of the world. You're still alive. You try again or you try something different. But you don't not try anything. And maybe that's why the glimmering was saying, why didn't you try something even if that yeah. didn't work like breaking the pots it would at least be active you're at least seeking yeah um, i just thought it was funny that um he chose to talk about faust as more of a creator um because yes. joe fernard actually says god and genesis was very faustian which is such a strange comment to make <laughs> I have to now look into Faust. And he also mm. made the point that there are a lot of stories about Faust, but the only one that that they were talking about was, was it Goethe's? Yeah. yeah. So he was very clearly directing us all to look at that, and none of us did. Well, yeah. there's a, he reads the quote, which is, um, a swamp surrounds the mountains, poisoning everything already reclaimed to, dry, to drain the foul marsh. This must be done. This would be the highest conquest possible. All open room for many millions, not in any sense safe, but daily freed in which to live. Green the meadow and fruitful, men and herds almost already on the new, on the most new earth, settled on the rim of which has already been pushed up by bold people's efforts. Within here, a paradise that keeps outside the flood, and as it eats away, trying to enter and take over, a group will hurry to cut it off. Yes, this men and herds, uh, yes, this, wait. Sorry, there's like a conversation that interrupts it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's where it stops. So, but he does talk about Faust as a creator who's opening up, who's draining swamps and opening up green meadows. Well, and that would connect with Genesis, where although people keep going off the track, they're pushed back onto the track where they can be creators with God because that's the point when God creates Adam and says now you will you know work the fields and everything and I don't have anything right in front of me because I'm just pulling this out of my memory but the idea wasn't that work would be hard the idea was that work would be kind of like Joe felt about the pots like ooh exciting and that if we're co-creators with God in that sense because there's this idea from later people looking at it was that God kind of deliberately left some of earth and everything chaotic so that we would have this as something enjoyable and pleasurable that we would do together with God. So that would be a way of kind of 
having fun together in a sense. Um, but also going back to Genesis, you, you've got the, the, the fall where mm-hmm. Eden is gone and in the swamp, in the Faustian quote, right, is it's like the flooding of all the the lands that could have been ours. Mm-hmm. It's the destruction of the perfect and the beautiful. And, and the draining of the swamp allows us to reclaim that which was taken. And that all goes back into what's happening in the uh, Mare Nostrum, right? The, mm-hmm. the sunken t- cathedral. Um, I think Harlan Ellison has a story called Midnight in the Sunken Cathedral, but there's also like this literal cathedral at the bottom of this ocean. How did it get down there? Um, Oh, it was the fog things of antiquity. And I just love that. (laughs) (laughs) One of the the aliens who used to live on the planet, they're the fog things of antiquity. (laughs) The fog things. Why are they fog things? Because we don't really know what's going on back then, right? (laughs) They're the foggy foggy history. It's kind of hard to know what's going on there. We know it's there, but we don't know what's going on. Really. Well, yeah, and they said the only inhabitant of the planet is, you know, the Glimung infirm. Mm-hmm. And senile, right? He's not doing anything actively. Um, yeah, they say he's infirm. And senile, mm-hmm. right? That's what the and... Kellens say, right? That's no, the actually... encyclopedia. What? Oh, the encyclopedia. Okay, right. Which was another thing that was really interesting because it was like almost a prescience in one way of the Internet. They could tell you anything about anything, but it wasn't really right or it was what they thought should be right. You know, that's my interpretation. But on the other hand, because it was written in 1969, he's having to look things up in a phone book. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, and I was just like, I love this. This is this whole, here's what could be. And it actually, in a sense, we have it. But on the other hand, we're back in 1969, which cracked me up. Sorry. Yeah, you, can, you can get a lot done on the telephone, and that's what he does, right? He he does his <laughs> banking. He does his... his I know. His he does it all. Mr. Job and Mr. Lawyer. <laughs> and yeah, Mr. Well, and they, um, and I just have to say some of the best lines, and this goes back to even the robots. These these robots aren't aspiring to something greater, but they are like people in that they'll, you know, I'm sorry, that's as much information as you can have for 24 hours because it was costing us too much. And he tries to call back and fake them out. Nope, sorry. We could we have voice recognition software. They're now. they're just as inhumane as the human. Right, exactly, and it's the same way of a human being just following the rules. They seem to be um, sassier than the humans, though. Oh yeah, they're so like Because sort of he's asking um, the bank, and it's the Interplan Corn and Wheat People's Collective Bank. So his view of yep. society is it's communism as absorbed into capitalism, but taken to the extreme, right? And um, he says, how how much is 35000 crumbles in terms of our dollars? And I don't even know what this sum is. It's so incredibly much. And really, Joe says, would I lie to you? The bank robot voice said, I don't even know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, right. Because if I knew you, I might lie to you. But otherwise, no. Um there there there's not that i mean there's there's 20 robots we only get the name of of willis right he's their sort of personal robot i guess mm-hmm. for molly molly and um joe but uh the, the, a lot of other things are alive right the the telephones and such but uh, when when they just get to the the spaceport on uh on plowman's planet 
Um, there's a hovercraft, and even it's alive, and I, it has a great personality. It says, a hovercraft, illuminated in large, manifested itself above them. And I was thinking, oh, that manifested, that must mean it's a glimmung, because the, that's how the glimmung appears, right? He manifests. I thought himself. the same thing, yeah. Um, gradually descending, in, at last, it parked itself in the midst of the group. Hello, it said. I am your conveyance to your work areas. <laughs> Board me carefully, and I will take you there, if you would, please. Hello, hello. <laughs> they came on board. And hello to you too, Joe said to himself, as he and the rest of them slithered and flapped and bumbled aboard. <laughs> it's like it, this is a nice robot, right? It's very polite. It enjoys its work. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. yeah. It's like a stewardess or whatever. Hello, hello, or flight attendant. Yeah, Sorry, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking though is about the Callens, the book of Callens. It was. In a sense, it was like the Bible, where a lot of people could look at it and go, "Well, this means you're going to die if this happens." And when they and notice, yeah, what you, it you is, that's not really what it says. It says something that you could interpret that way. But mm-hmm. what happens is Joe dies to his old self, in a sense, and is made into something else because it just says you'll be greatly changed. Or so, I can't. I was trying to find it and I didn't mark that part. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting that everybody was very sure about what it meant. And really, if you looked at it in context or read carefully what it was saying, there was a lot more indefinite quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, I would really love to now force Scott to read this book and talk to me about it because it's worth rereading. Yeah, it's a lot in it. Yeah, that he could listen to us and then we could take it the next step. Yeah, um, I, I have a poem that I, I'm really getting into poetry these days, and really? I have a poem that I posted uh, to the website a couple weeks ago. Um, and I, I wanted to. It's actually a prose poem. It's it's like a little short story mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that's sort of poetic, and it's by Lord Dunsany. Um, it's about writing, and uh, and it's also um, about work and about the meaning of existence in the face of uh, of you know your small place in the universe. And I thought it was really it it just fits with Lovecraft and it fits with this book. It fits with a bunch of things. So I, I wanted to read this to you here. Oh, good. Uh, the Raft Builders, it's called, by Lord Dunsany. All we who write put me in mind of sailors hastily making rafts upon doomed ships. When we break up under the heavy years and go down into eternity with all that is ours and our thoughts like small lost rafts float on a while upon oblivion's sea. And oblivion is capitalized. They will not carry much over those tides our names, and a phrase or two, and little else. They that write as a trade to please the whim of the day, they are like sailors that work at the rafts only to warm their hands and to distract their thoughts from their certain doom. Their rafts go all to pieces before the ship breaks up. See now oblivion shimmering all around us? It is the very tranquility, its very tranquility deadlier than tempest. How little our keels have troubled it. Time in its deeps swims like a monstrous whale, and like a whale feeds on the littlest things, small tunes and little unskilled songs of the olden golden evenings, and anon turneth whale-like to overthrow whole ships. See now the wreckage of Babylon floating idly, and something there that once was Nineveh. 
Already the kings and queens are in the deeps among the weedy masses of the old centuries that hide the sudden bulk of sunken Tyre and make the darkness round Persepolis. For the rest, I dimly see the forms of foundered ships on the seafloor strewn with crowns. Our ships were all unseaworthy from the first. There goes the raft that Homer made for Helen. That's it. Wow. That makes me think of Gilgamesh. It does. And notice Gilgamesh is one of the stories that, you know, it's almost gone. It's mm-hmm. almost gone. Still, mm-hmm. we can still see it. Most people don't read it. Right? Right. If, if Rose hadn't told me about it, I wouldn't have ever been interested in that uh, Robert Silverberg version. And I wouldn't have heard uh, you guys talking about it. Yeah. If you, oh, it all's intertwined. <laughs> yep. Oh, thank um, goodness maybe. I took that horrible, horrible class. <laughs> yeah, you said that teacher was awful. Yeah. Um, what I was going to ask, though, since um, I haven't read his other novels, and both of you have, and Rose, especially you, um, have got really into them at one point. You probably did, Jesse, since you love Philip K. Dick. Is this, Rose, you said was his most whimsical? Is that it also... I'm sorry, what, that you've read? That I've read, yeah. Is this... Uh, most whimsical novel, I would say, yeah. One of his... And, Jesse, you said it was short. So, is this shorter than most of his books? I thought they were all no, really they're all, brief. They're all pretty short, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, later on, he gets some really long-winded things. In the 70s, He's he can be quite long-winded. Oh, he had a I publisher then. Really stuff that's more... That's not science fiction, that's um, realist stuff, is a little bit longer... Yeah, I haven't read those ones. I haven't either. He but wrote a lot of library books, and they look longer. Yeah, and there's a the newest one is the Exegesis, which is his basically what do they call that? A common book, you know, where you write down everything that's happening and all oh. the thoughts you have. I think that's what that is. Yeah, that would probably kill me. I I I don't think I'm ever going to read that. <laughs> never there's so many other things I'd rather read that are sort of more put together and. More, more. Uh, the wonderful thing about this book is that it is a piece of art, right? It is complete. Mm-hmm. It has that great ending. It has all these thoughts going on in the middle. It has a great beginning, and putting it all as a whole, it is something that you can appreciate and love. Yeah, you feel in- he crafted it. You feel that he didn't just dash this off like the common book, where it's just recording his thoughts as a journal or whatever. But this yeah. is this is something. To weave all these pieces in so deliberately and have them recur and everything, he had to really work on this, or he had a fantastic editor, or both. Um, but Rose, so you've said you said though that what's your favorite of his books? I really love A Scanner Darkling. It's a good book. It's a really good book. And I prefer his books. I don't care as much about. Um, how well the plots are constructed um, as much as the ideas he presents in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved his scanner darkly, which was kind of introspective um, and funny <laughs> and humane, right? Well, all those things. There were some funny moments. I think the fact, I think the subject matter precludes it from being a, a hilarious book. But, well, um, this, one's, this one's pretty hilarious and it's all about, you know, feelings of suicide and even even at the beginning of the book he uh, this book he talks about wanting having once thought to kill a senator and he thought i'll kill a senator 
And he said, no, that won't do any good. It won't change things. It's like, because he just has to change things, right? And people who are suicidal, uh, this is the, this is the, one of the great secrets about suicide is people who are su- suicidal are afraid to die. They do put themselves in jeopardy of killing other people so that they can not have to deal with it, right? Yeah. They try suicide by cop, it's called. Oh, right. Well, and the funny, here's the thing. This book was humorous, but the first time I read it, that humor, only the most broad parts of humor really came through to me, like the pottery in the booth, because mm-hmm. I was busy being so depressed and horrified by this guy's life and the situation on Earth, and then kind of confused by, I was just trying to grasp the storyline and go on through. And it was on the rereading because I could relax some. I knew what was going to happen, and I could really take in the smaller portions of it. Now, a lot of that's probably because of how I read. I read fast. I tend to not catch all the details. That's my own flaw. But um, so... But that, that's why I was so surprised when I was rereading. I was just laughing my head off the whole time. Um, so a scanner well, darkly might kill me. Rose, it, it is much more depressing, don't you think, than than this book, Scanner Darkly? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it, it's pretty depressing. But it, there's it also has something closer to home about it, I think. And I think he obviously intended it to be that way. But the whole thing takes place on Earth, and. Very personal to him, I think. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, the drug use. Well, I do know that much better. Uh, a dedication or an author's note or something where he talks about um, about all the his inspiration, friends. I guess, of, of yeah. all of his friends that died from drug use. Oh. Yeah, it's not so much about his own abuse of drugs. It's more about about how it, you know, they're just not good for people. They right. bring people to a bad place, and yet ironic. The, yeah. It's funny. It's it's funny in that, you know, there's a, a hilarious scene in which the guy is planning his his death and he he thinks that archaeologists will find him and know that he was a Superman because he he was holding a copy of Ayn Rand's The Fountain. <laughs> yeah, he was a, he was killed by society because he he was a misunderstood Superman. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's, he's dead in his bed a like thousand the, years in the future. Also, the thing I think is interesting is this book, even though it ends on a line that I thought he meant to indicate failure, I didn't take it that way. And Rose said, I don't think he meant it that way necessarily. It makes me think of the fact that, Rose, um, you have a friend who loves Kurt Vonnegut, yeah. but <laughs> is really... What was it? She's very hopeless a lot of the time or something. And so you kept trying to get her onto Philip K. Dick because he was just as cutting edge in that way, but more hopeful. Was that well, it? She, I mean, and she's someone, I think, who her love of Kurt Vonnegut made her more nihilist, um, nihilist. That's rather it. than the other way around. Um, and to me, Kurt Vonnegut is very... I'm not a huge Vonnegut fan. I feel like he's very kind of self-satisfied and... Yes, you're right. Um, he's not really interested in um, questioning the world around him as much as he is about making funny little comments and thinking how clever he is. I watched uh, that adaptation of Harrison Bergeron yesterday, and it was it, it, that story has always disturbed me in that it doesn't it isn't attacking a problem that we really have. Mm-hmm. It, the, our problem is not that we're trying to make everyone equal. It's 
by by pulling down everybody who's who's greater. And so the the point that it seems to be making is like some sort of whack job libertarian mm. idea that we're all going to uh, be brought to the lowest uh, and the stupidest point uh, because of uh, I don't know like dis- disability legislation or something like that. And <laughs> that doesn't seem to me the kind of problem that we're really facing in government <laughs> oppression these days. Is that I mean the nanny state idea that that I guess is popular occasionally it it doesn't seem to be trying to repress people's natural abilities to you know be ex- excellent in whatever endeavor it is so that right the problem that he's tackling seems to be a non-existent one and his solution to it seems to solve nothing and yet it's very popular he he is a extremely popular writer and i i don't find anything really uh beautiful in what he writes yeah and the only time i've read vonnegut actually was um for class in high school we had to read um cat's uh cat's cradle Mm -hmm. and i think i was the only person in the class who didn't like it so obviously you know his work has appeal i just felt there was kind of a hopelessness about his books that was kind of disturbing in the fact that he didn't seem to mind there was no solution, but he didn't yeah. care that there was no solution. His I, solution was to write the book and say that there's no solution. Just to be clever. Yeah. Right. And to present yeah. it all as kind of I, just a joke word. about everyone else. It's a tr- it's 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 kind of like a trite thing to, to you say, you know, look, we're all screwed. Uh-huh. And I say, oh, isn't it horrible? We're all screwed. Ah, uh, well, at least we have each other. Right. <laughs> Which, doesn't really help. I mean, if that's all you've got. Um, yeah, and that's why Philip K. Dick, you know, I avoided him for a long time because when I was in class in college, I had to read The Man in the High Castle. I took a science fiction class, which was super cutting edge at the time to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I found it so depressing, and the teacher didn't really help delve into a lot of the deeper themes. And I might not have been able to hear him if he did at that point. But then I read, I've you know, the short stories, which are very simple, but I love. And then this book made me go, oh, I see, Rose, why you were saying that about Kurt Vonnegut versus Philip K. Dick, because he's not opposed to a hopeful idea. He's willing to throw everything out there, kind of throw it all at the wall in his artful way and say, what sticks? There is something better. What What is it that you find that's better? Is it? It's because he he actually in the end of this book, he doesn't condemn the people who stayed with the Glimmer. No. Those mm-hmm. those people I, have achieved something greater and more satisfying as a unit, and they still maintain their individualism. Well, but Joe he, is capable of doing great things himself, also. And even in his novel. Um, there's kind of a setup for the idea of them staying with the Glimmung as being acceptable because of the idea of pot healing, because of all of these shards not becoming, oh right, you know, kind of glued together, but actually healed into the original pot. Oh, mind blown! I never even thought of that. Oh, yeah, did well, he yeah, write that out there for us, or is that you? Pieces are missing. Like he can't do it if there's one piece missing. The pot won't be healed. And, oh. In the whole collective unconsciousness idea that's there. Um, So it is kind of an acceptable choice that he presents. 
just made that whole book different for me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know what covers you guys have on, on your, your copies. I, I've, there's the one that seems to be the most common has a cathedral and then a bird. Right. That's what I have. The about. dark bird and the red sky mm-hmm. and the little earth. Oh, mine's blue. And it's got like a ceiling, like a shot from the, the floor, like looking up at the ceiling of the cathedral. But it's only got like the shape of it. Mm. Like the ceiling has fallen through and is missing. Oh, and then there's okay. like lightning in the sky. Hmm, interesting. And this one, the cathedral has some faces in it. The, the one I like the most is yeah, the the that's a really nice one. The, that's the original hardcover, I think, uh, with the bird and the mm-hmm. the cathedral under the sea. It's my library book. And there's a there's a really fun one that I like. That's <laughs> I like the things that are not as symbolic. You know, I like really obvious like. Show me what it looks like. Show me the rocket ship. So there's one that has a uh, basically a sea monster that looks like uh, you know a, a squid or uh, octopus coming out of the ocean, and in the background is is a cathedral coming up out of the ocean, mm. and and it's like it's right there. It's in your face. This is what he looks like. The glimmering. <laughs> when you're reading the book, um, what he looks like is always changing, right? Yes. And the one thing that I haven't uh, talked to you about that I've talked to other people about is is how the way the Glimmung manifests himself in the world is much the way I think that you, Julie, uh, see God in the world and the way I guess Scott does too, right? And I think when, Rose probably. Uh, probably Rose too, I don't know. In the washing I, machine, you mean? Well, no, like... He could be there. Laundry. Just, just doesn't show himself in his true form, right? Right. Uh, it like it, even when he shows himself in his true form in the in the hotel, <laughs> and he falls ten floors to the to the cellar, right? That that that's probably not even his true form because um, they say he knew he would fall. It's what they right? expect, so he does it kind of almost as a joke. But he he does yeah because it makes them laugh and it makes yeah. them. I mean, it's not, there's no concern about having killed all the people underneath them in the hotel, right? So it's it's because that's not, there was nobody killed in the hotel. That's why it's not there. Right, and there's no concern about his own dignity. Right, the check is going to be in the mail in the morning to the hotel for the damage. Yeah, well, and also the thing of, um, like when he's at the hotel terminal, or um, air spaceport terminal and he's smoking a cigarette and he says uh they joe says well can't they tell and he goes no and evidently they can't see me either could you order me yeah could you order me a bowl of fat worm soup and so it's that idea that he's connecting and and thinking of god and thinking of the glimmung you know he there's no concern for his self-dignity because he doesn't worry about that he knows who he is so securely he's more worried about connecting with the people and the people, in a way that they understand, oh, you're the Glimmung. You know? And sometimes he manifests himself as like he has a secretary, <laughs> and they send you know notes or memos or you know communicates by letters. But uh, one of my friends who read the book, he his favorite part is when a bottle pops up uh, out of the ocean while he's you know they're waiting for the. <laughs> The fight to happen. Right. And he says, "Don't lose faith." And then it just says, "Signature G." <laughs> you know, the G is like 
is the way I end an email is not with Jesse, it's with Jay yeah. because I don't have time. He's busy <laughs> down there Detroit. fighting himself, right? He doesn't have time. Well, yeah, and the he's idea that you know he's fighting his black self, but he still has time to send hourly updates, or he lets them know, like I'm going to send right. hourly updates on this. He, what what is sort of happening in this whole thing, right? Is is this book is about depression and depression at being out of work, depression and suicide thoughts of suicide, like what is the point of life? And what the Glimung does is he says, look, I'm just like you, except I'm bigger and faster, and I have my own black dog I need to fight, or black Glimung I need to fight, uh, and it's depression, but I'm going to let you know I'm going to be okay. I'm going to try my best, and yeah, I feel low sometimes, but we can all, if we work together and we struggle on, you know, well, we might be able to raise this cathedral, get this job done. Right. right. I, I just, they, they, you know, the relationship, there's no racism between the mollusk people and the <laughs> yeah. insectoid uh, or arachnid people. Right. They're all yeah. happy to be with each other and and get the project going. And it's it's kind of a, a business, but it's also right. It's it's just it's I love this book. Yeah, it's great. yeah this is it's it is a great book. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.